I'm Katie McGrady, and this is Ave Explores. Most of us, when we hear liturgical season, our mind probably immediately shifts to one of two liturgical seasons, Advent and Lent. And I think the reason is very simple. Advent is building up to Christmas, and the whole secular world is talking about Christmas right around Advent. And generally, Easter, well, we're quite excited about that, right? This is when the Lord is resurrecting. So Lent, which is kind of the most Catholic of all the liturgical seasons because we get to do something in a very pointed way, we get to pray and fast and give alms, well, Lent is just kind of front of the mind. Advent and Lent are also the ones that are incredibly identifiable well beyond the walls of our church. I'll never forget last year, Mark Wahlberg, who had launched this special pray challenge on the Hallow app, he went on the Today Show on Ash Wednesday to talk about it. <laughs> and they called it in like the little headline thing that they have on the bottom of the screen on TV, Mark Wahlberg's 40-day prayer challenge. And of course, you know, the Catholic internet went wild. Oh, I love the rebranding of Lent. It's Mark Wahlberg's liturgical year, right? His 40 days. It's, you know, really Jesus's and the churches. I think we also like Advent and Lent because there's, there's timing to it. We get four weeks of Advent, generally. Sometimes that fourth Sunday of Advent is just, a, you know, a couple of days after we celebrate Christmas. This year, we get the full four weeks. It's really exciting. Lent is 40 days, and then we get to celebrate the Triduum, which is three special days all on its own. And then we launch ourselves into the 50 days of the Easter season. Rejoice. Hallelujah. There's also stuff associated with Advent and Lent. There's the Christmas lights and the Christmas tree that everybody knows for the Christmas season. But we Catholics, of course, use our Advent wreath with our candles. We have our Jesse tree with our images. We have these various little traditions that maybe help us get closer and closer to the birth of, of the Lord. And then, of course, during Lent, we get projects. We give something up. We add something into our spiritual life. We work to be more generous to the people around us. There is a focus to these seasons, which is why I think they're generally so popular. And yeah, I said that right. You heard me. These liturgical seasons are popular. It's not that ordinary time isn't popular, but sometimes we're kind of floundering around. Well, what do I do during ordinary time? And well, you celebrate saints days and you celebrate important feast days and go listen to our prior episodes to get some ideas about that. But we know what to do in Advent. Get ready for Christmas. We know what to do in Lent. Get ready for Easter. But how do we go beyond the surface of that? How do we dig a little deeper into the meaning? Well, years and years ago, when Ave Explorers first started, we decided to do a special Lenten episode with two of my very favorite people on planet Earth, Sister Miriam James Heidland and Father John Burns. And that actually sparked a, a great friendship between me and, and them. And it actually launched some pretty incredible resources written by Sister Miriam James Heidland and Father John Burns, both of which are still available and incredibly popular on the Ave Maria Press website, devotionals that really walk you through day by day the Advent and Lenten season. Father John has some incredible insights about what spiritually is going on in our hearts and in the life of the church in Advent and in Lent, and how these are times of purgation, these are times of purifying, these are times of focus. So we wanted to take a brief moment 
in the midst of talking about liturgical living and the liturgical year, to really dive into these two somewhat popular liturgical seasons, Advent and Lent, how we can make them really fruitful, how we can lean into the gift that they are, and offer some very practical insights into what living Advent and Lent with intentionality could look like. If you are liking what you're hearing this season on Ave Explorers, we'd be really grateful if you'd follow everything we're doing over at our website, including signing up for our weekly emails so you don't miss anything. Father John Burns has two incredible reflection books for Advent and Lent. We've got them linked down in the show notes, so make sure you grab a copy well in advance. We, of course, always do an Advent and Lent season here on Ave Explorers, so that'll be coming out this later in the fall, and then, of course, next spring with our Lenten series. So subscribe to the show and you won't miss anything. But for now, we'd be grateful if you'd sit back and enjoy this conversation with Father John Burns about intentionality in the liturgical year during Advent and Lent. Father John Burns, welcome back to Ave Explores. Hey, Katie here, everybody. Great to be back with you. It's always a joy to get to chat with you, Father. I don't know if you remember this, but we did a, a podcast. You were like in the second or third season of Ave Explorers. And then that like led to books that you've written with Ave. And I feel like we get to do this at least once a year. Introduce yourself to our audience. For our new listeners, of course, the familiar favorites know you. Yeah, my name is Father John Burns, a priest of the Archdiocese of Milwaukee, a diocesan priest. Uh, I've been ordained 13 years now. And yeah, I've enjoyed coming on over the years with you and uh, the other great stuff Ave's doing. But yeah, I just my I've got a particular assignment. I work for the renewal of women's religious life, but I've been in vocations. I've been in a couple of parishes and I did extra studies, so kind of all over the place. But uh, yeah, I love being a priest, and so I love being able to share the word whenever possible. I love I love that casual extra studies has a doctorate. Like extra studies is wrote a PhD uh, dissertation. Tell us a listen, little bit about your dissertation. <laughs> I never list, you know, at the end of your uh, name, you <laughs> yep. list off your You have letters. Never do. I, it's kind of annoys me sometimes when you have that long train of like nine different sets of letters. But no, <laughs> yeah, I don't talk about it too much. My, I, my bishop really asked me to go back for a doctorate. Um, it, it, I was in the best assignment of my life. I was in this beautiful parish. I loved my people. And he, he wanted me to go back and get a doctorate. It was really hard to obey there. But um, in, in his wisdom, the archbishop was totally right. I needed to go back and uh, I learned so much. So the, the research, I went back trying to figure out a way to like help people that I couldn't, I, didn't, I felt like I couldn't help while I was in the parish and anger came up so much. Forgiveness came up a lot. So I researched forgiveness for like two years. Mm -hmm. I researched the emotions, the passions in Thomas Aquinas and in psychology. And so I ended up writing on the theology of healing and where forgiveness fits in that whole thing. But it was just a great study because it was so practical. So sometimes people go back for a doctorate and get like really technical and do some cool work that contributes to like a pretty obscure academic engagement. I didn't do that level of work. I was trying to <laughs> stay practical and uh, and bring some things together that weren't yet together in the tradition, but at a blast. It was like, yeah, I was a super anointed two years. It turns out obedience always pays. Like we just want to obey. Disobedience <laughs> is always costly. That's a, There's a book in there, uh, both on the obedience part and the forgiveness part. This might not be, it might not seem topical, but I do want to ask, in studying the theology of forgiveness and healing, like, did you learn one thing that like you wish everybody knew? Yeah, I, I, the whole theme of forgiveness. I mean, I don't think I appreciated how much forgiveness, interpersonal forgiveness, like when we forgive our enemies in obedience to Christ's command there, but how much that heals us. Like it sits, it, it just, it, when we really move into forgiveness, it, it brings an order to the inner 
reality of our emotions. And it, it moves us into being more like God who looks upon his offenders or those who reject him with, with mercy and kindness. That's a huge shift. And so practicing forgiveness, it makes us like God. It, it divinizes us, but it also heals us for the mm. same reason or connected. And so I just, I, I, before I knew it was a commandment, we have to forgive. I want to get rid of my anger. Studying it and then walking with people in it formally in ministry, it's it just it delivers us. Forgiveness delivers us and heals us. That's why it's so hard. It's why we don't really know how to do it very well. But man, when we practice it, it's, it's a game. I've seen people physically healed, physically healed mm. from choosing to move through forgiveness of like major traumatic wounds. I mean, yeah. it's the body and the heart. The way we're made by God is just stunning. And yeah. uh, seeing how central that was really, really rich. It's interesting that you say like we want that order. Like we know that there's when something's been disordered or disrupted. Just a, a couple of weeks ago, um, I caught Rose doing something she was not supposed to do and like actively caught her doing it, sat her down, talked to her about it, asked her if she had anything else that she wanted to tell me about like what she had been doing. And she said no. And then like two minutes later, she came to me and she admitted a little bit more. Um, mm. And I could see like the physical shame like she was red-faced she was upset we talked through how like obviously i still love you as your mother like this is just there's a rupture here but like we can heal this and kind of talk through it i i was i will tout my motherliness in this moment i was very proud that i did not overreact in this moment <laughs> but she like felt it so deeply went to her room hid under her covers for like 10 minutes because she was just like i just need to feel bad about this and then It'll be fine at at five. Like she had not even turned six yet at five years old. And talking through that with my husband is like, I've gone through that. Like every human being has gone through that. But it's amazing to watch your tiny human go through that and then yeah. not know how to help them through that. So I imagine as a priest, like sitting in the confessional, watching people wrestle or even just like in a moment of counseling or like encounter. How, how do you that you're you're helping people bring order and hopefully like heal from what they feel so deeply but then does that then affect you? Like, how do you bring order back into your life after you've walked with people through that? Well, yeah, that, a lot of times people ask, especially people who don't practice their faith, they're like, do you, is confession hard? Is it depressing? I mean, mm -hmm. you're looking at everybody's worst stuff all the time. And it's actually, it, the first couple of times I was asked, I was actually surprised by the question because it hadn't even occurred to me mm -hmm. in my own mind that confession could be depressing because it's it literally 100% success rate. Like everybody who comes in, <laughs> Provided they're repentant, right? And and they they actually confess their sins and receive absolution. Everybody who comes in leaves better, like leaves really well. Like they're mm. they're reconciled to God. So while you see the worst of it, you're basically the Lord's vehicle there for bringing truth into a place of shame. Like what's your name mm. with Rose is not only recognizing she did something wrong, but then shame kind of washes over, and that's a real snare of the enemy for a lot of people. Is yeah. just to, to to sit in our misery too long. Um, and in confession, what you're experiencing as the priest and the penitent is experiencing it, you know, subjectively, personally, you're just watching the Lord insert into that pathway the truth, which is, no, 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 you don't stay in your shame. Uh, you did something wrong and, and the guilt was necessary to bring you to repentance, but now that's gone. So let's stand back in the light, uh, the truth, which is just order. And so it's actually, I mean, it's utterly delightful. I was just talking to a brand new priest who was sharing grace. And he's like, yeah, by far and away, the most shocking thing has been how beautiful it is to hear confession, absolve people of their sins and watch them mm -hmm. come back to God. Mm -hmm. So it's not a, yeah, you you actually don't, it's not like you need to kind of cleanse afterwards. You come out of confession just awed, really awed at the beauty of God who's, who's, who's rescuing. Yeah.
obsessed lately with this theme of rescue and then this outcry of Israel uh, for the for their rescue from sin, from captors, from persecutors, from idolatry. And God, a title for God we don't use very often is rescuer. You know, mm-hmm. he's the divine rescuer. He Jesus is the answer to uh, Israel's outcry for rescue. He's the Father's choice to rescue Israel. And and you just watch people in confession, but also just in the moral life in general, when they move into order, they're being rescued from the snares of the world, uh, which make us angry and sad. So it's it's really, uh, frankly, just beautiful. Very, very often I come to tears uh, mm-hmm. in confession because you just are watching this person. You see the scriptures play out again. You're watching this person come to the feet of the Lord, sorrowful, and then having the Lord pick them up and say, go in mm-hmm. peace. Your sins are forgiven. Yeah. That's it's a scripture played out in front of us in real time. Yeah. I love that word rescue. What do you think we have to be rescued from right now? Oh right? man, I was, I was looking at the uh I, I like etymology and like looking at what words mean in their roots. And I was looking at the word uh soter or, or the root of salvation, because I was thinking about I was thinking about the sacraments as our salvation, the, the liturgical seasons as a as a salvation or part of our salvation. And like in the roots of the word salvation, part of it is about being rescued, saved, but like we're saved from that which is killing us um, mm. materially, those are enemies and oppressors for the Israelites, especially. But for us, that's the the demon, and it's the lies of the father of lies that that have snared us. It's the wilderness and the chaos, and the rescue is, is Jesus just going out there to confront all that, so we don't have to do it ourselves. Archetypally, fundamentally, like the beginning of Mark's gospel, right? Mark is the shortest gospel, and right away in Mark's gospel, Jesus goes straight out of the wilderness to confront the tempter, and it's like we were underneath. The lies since since the fall, we were under the lies of the enemy. He had his hold on us. First thing Jesus does is go straight to battle. He goes mm-hmm. straight out into the wilderness to square off with the father of lies because we had not been able to. And so he's rescuing us from the the, the demon, right? But but also the effects of the demon, the, the snares of lies, which is why later in John's gospel, he says, I am the truth. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He's rescuing us from every falsehood including distortions of truth, misunderstandings of who we are, who God is, what we're supposed to do, how to, how to get home to heaven. Um, and so he's, he's, what we need to be rescued from is, is disorder, which includes distorted truth, disordered, it's the lies. And, and he's restoring or bestowing upon us just what is actually our salvation, our health, mm-hmm. uh, which is the ordering of the intellect, the ordering of the will, the ordering of the passions, so that we live in that good order that is given to us by God. So rescued from everything that's not of God. Yeah. Well, and that that idea of of we we need good order in our life. We try to order our lives, but often we do it in a very disordered way. Like we think, well, if I can, I go back a lot to the story of Martha and Mary and this idea of Martha being burdened, and she's burdened because she's trying to do all these very good things, but like none of them are actually the right thing in that moment. And you mentioned like we're rescued, we're saved from this disorder because the Lord wants to bring us back into right order. And in, in today's day and age, we'll transition into actually talking about the topic, right? The church gives us a calendar of order. Like the church doesn't just say, ah, figure it out. Like the church is incredibly structured from the readings that we have every single day all the way to like these seasons. And sure, it's a confusing big circle calendar with all these different colors if you don't know what it means. But talk to me about how the church has found a way to really order the rhythms of our year, even just like with the way light starts disappearing the day that John the Baptist feast day is celebrated and then it starts to reappear on Christmas like how that kind of even that that, that very simple structure and specifically how the church allows us to find order that that is there's a soothingness to that right 
Oh man, yeah. So uh, let me potentially go on a few tangents. You edit out whatever you want to. Go ahead. <laughs> You're um, always I, welcome I, to, Father. Yeah. I'm just I've been because this is a deep theme, and I've been thinking about it a lot. Frankly, in the fact that the word, our word, W-O-R-D, the, the Greek word for that is logos, which is where we get the word logic, you know, like where, where the logos is, there's logic. And where there's logic, things hold together, fit together, there's truth. And and the logos, the, the word is woven throughout the entire order of creation. Like at the beginning in Genesis 1, the first thing that happens, there's this chaos or this abyss the father, so this is the, the, the father of the church pointed this out to us. The father speaks, the word goes forth from his mouth, and it's the spirit that draws that forth or carries the word forth. So the Trinity is like there at the beginning of creation, but it's the word that goes out, and the word is logos. So there's this, this darkness and there's this, this abyss. As soon as the father speaks his word, things start to become organized. Mm -hmm. And and all of creation is about the the exercise of the logos within created material realities. So woven into everything that is is the logos. There are Justin Martyr early early saint talked about the fact that the logos is woven like seeds throughout everything in all of creation. The order of God. So when we talk about ordering our time or coming back into good order, avoiding disorder, it's really not something we're fabricating or or trying to to acquire. The order precedes the disorder. There's a there's a, a, a woven into everything is the order of God or the logos, the logic of how things work best, how mm. things are by their natures. So we get disordered. Our lives become disordered when we uh, enter into distortions of the truth, when we turn away from the good order of God and living in, in right communion, rightly ordered relationships. And that disorder accumulates over time, especially as we live in the world that is that is not ordered or is, is competitive with the order of God, competitive with the Logos, um, hating God. When we live out there in that chaos, we, we live disordered lives. The church is... God's final answer to our inability to find order ourselves. Israel was trying over and over again to keep fidelity to this covenant. They couldn't. And so God's like, enough. I'm going to come and, and make this even easier for you. Take up flesh. The Logos, right? The word incarnate now. Right. Bestow an order in everything he does. Mm -hmm. And then leaving us a church to find that order again. So the church, the new and eternal covenant, like once and for all, passes through the rest of time or holds the rest of time in order through the sacramental structure that, that God has given to us. The, the sacramental structure of our existence is always ordering what has fallen out of order because the world itself is not ordered. Mm. So when it's left to itself, when it, when it operates outside of logic, a little sidebar, I've been sitting with this word when Jesus says he's getting ready to enter into his passion. And he says to the disciples, I will not leave you desolate. And he promises his spirit. But then another place he talks about peace. He says, in the world, you will have anxiety, but fear not. I have typically the translation says, I've overcome the world or I've conquered mm -hmm. the world. And, and that's a word about the logos. That's the word speaking a word about order. But when you get into the Greek, another way of translating it. So I'm not, I'm not a Greek scholar. I have good dictionaries for the record. I sound smarter <laughs> than I am. I look at good dictionaries, great concordances, and they're super helpful. But when you get down into the meaning of these words, Jesus, he's saying, I've conquered the world. But uh, uh, the world, the word for world is, is cosmos in Greek. And, and the word for conquered is also related to subduing. Mm. So there's a way of seeing what Jesus is saying there is, do not be afraid. In the world, you're going to have anxiety. But fear not, I have subdued 
not just the world, I have subdued the cosmos, which is like a really liberating word to think about. He has, uh, by by his incarnation and eventually by his resurrection, his final victory, he has brought everything under his reign. Now, because we're fallen, we can resist that reign. We can step back out of it into the chaos of the wilderness outside the garden. But but he has done something that orders everything again. Mm. And that's the church. That's through the church. He's extending that ordering throughout time. So to your question, those are the sidebars or maybe the long <laughs> ramp up. But like when we, so if you go to the sacristy of most churches, there's going to be a little book in there that just mm. tells the priest and, and anyone organizing the liturgy, what color, what feast, what season we're in and when you can celebrate which kinds of mass. And that book is literally called liturgical ordo, O-R-D-O. And it's it's related to the same word order. Mm. And it's it's a, a booklet that tells us how in the church's wisdom, this, this great gift of God, how time is organized, is ordered to make sure that we continually immerse ourselves more and more deeply in, in that victory, in what he did when he subdued the cosmos and set up for us a way in him to life, in his truth. So the liturgical seasons, are it's this flow. We talked about this a couple of years ago too, but I, I'm, I'm so obsessed with it. Like when we let the church lead us, the liturgy washes over our lives and, and we experience baptism afresh or renewal of our baptismal grace. We also experience the living water that Jesus promises to the Samaritan woman welling up within us. And there's this almost washing effect, a cleansing effect of the flow of the liturgical seasons. And again, the seasons are for our salvation, meaning like we're not healthy without them. We, we get lost and confused. We fall into disorder. The, the flow of the seasons throughout the year are there's this ebb and flow of celebration and penance of high glorious celebration and also turning back to God by recognizing ways that we've strayed. And that back and forth movement is, is repetitive intentionally and repetition is never the same year after year. It's, it's always, if we're engaging it, it's always a deepening. And I said before, like, we got to trust the church in this. And I think something really came to my prayer this morning like trusting the church is kind of a loaded thing today because we have all kinds of reasons for questioning leadership, questioning authority, high and low. You know, we question the people who are leading the church in different ways. And it's been this has been this way since the beginning. But trusting the church is actually trusting a much bigger reality than whoever's in charge in whatever day and age. The church is is the bride and is the the, the gift of God given to us so we can find our way home. Or we can receive his gift poured out through the church so we don't stay lost. And trusting the church means not trusting a person or people, but rather trusting this long flow across time since Jesus established the church, a flow that is ordered by the Logos, that's woven into creation, uh, that sits, if you will, underneath the surface and the dispersion of our lives. Mm -hmm. The work of God throughout time is to bring us back into order mm -hmm. and the liturgy the flow of the penitential as well as the glorious and celebratory seasons, these are all ordered toward order. These are, mm -hmm. are given to us to order our time. So we're always moving deeper into living upright lives, living with God. Yeah. As you were saying, I, I wrote in my notes, right, when we let the church lead us, right, we're experiencing this new order. We're experiencing this renewal of, a, of an understanding of like, this is the structure of, of life. I, I couldn't help but think back to like how our secular world tries to fabricate this. Like I walked into Target the other day for school supplies and they already had Halloween stuff out. And it's like, it is early August 
and you were already putting out the pumpkins and the fall decor because in our secular world, there's like this, okay, well, we have to anticipate this next season and you want to decorate your house or like every secular advent calendar that you can find that's happily just 12 days of like Harry Potter socks and certain types of candy. It's like our, our society is hungry for something that builds up, hungry for something that can like physically be in front of our faces to show us there's a difference at this time of year. And it's just like, come on, Catholics, like just pay attention to the fact that the church is giving you this structure and this routine, not just because we want decor or we want activities, but because it's actually like good for us. There's something salvific about like, hey, this month we're going to concentrate on the sorrowful heart of Jesus. This month, or or, of Mary, this month we're going to concentrate on the sacred heart of Jesus. Talk to me about how we kick off that, that ebb and flow in our liturgical year, which is the one I think secularly everybody knows about, right? Advent, because of these made up Advent calendars, because of this, like, oh yeah, the Christmas decorations come out the day after Thanksgiving. Um, Why does the church begin? Advent's actually penitential. It's not a celebratory season. Christmas is the celebration, but Advent is very penitential. Why do we begin in this particular way? Yeah, so both of the the, the purple seasons, the penitential seasons are, are that because of this recognition in her wisdom, the church sees that when we engage the cycle of the world alone, or we live just by the world in which we're only going to find anxiety, there's this sort of uh, inertia or this gravitational pull into the dispersion of, of the world and the culture. It's it's maybe really evident for us today, like, for example, when you sit on your phone scrolling for an hour or two, you feel uh, gray, empty, dispersed because your attention's been hopping from thing to thing to thing, nothing satisfies but we see that same thing actually, even in the cycles that you're naming of uh, secular seasons. Mm-hmm. We move from thing to thing to thing because we're always looking to a. We want a horizon. We're, we're horizon oriented by nature, and so we want to know what's coming and prepare for it and get ready for it and then celebrate it. But the 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 ache or the really the unquenchable thirst of a secular society is we're just jumping from thing to thing to thing, and none of it actually. It's like drinking poisoned water or just dirty water. None of it quite gets to the core of what we really need, mm-hmm. and that's the the joy really the glory of, of life in Christ is that what we're looking to is a horizon beyond this world. And the liturgical seasons are always pointing us to that because the, the pace of the world is going to pull us down out of that. So Advent begins with, with this quiet, gentle, proclamatory season of looking to the horizon, getting ready for the light. And yeah, there are these great ways to read scripture. You, you can A cool way to approach the Bible is just to look for a theme and then trace that across scripture. And one of the great themes of scripture of revelation itself is light and, and, and light, you know, from the beginning, that's the first thing that the Lord creates is the light in the darkness or draws light forth and the darkness loses its hold. That's how John's gospel begins. Advent looks at the light and, and helps us by the increasing light, even of those four candles on the wreath that they remind us that in the darkness, we're always going to get confused or scared. But when we turn back to the light, everything starts to make sense. And think about like little kids, for example. This has been a, a great, I've got nieces and nephews and uh, they're all awesome. My sister just had a baby. Oldest of them all is seven. So they're going through all the stuff. And uh, my nephew has a great imagination, but he will stare out in the darkness. If we're at like a campfire, he'll stare into the darkness and you'll see him like looking and he'll he'll get more and more kind of tense, and you'll see the wheels turning of his imagination on his face. 
And he's like seeing stuff that's out there that isn't really there. You know, it might've been like a moth or a, a firefly, mm-hmm. but now it's a monster and it's coming to get him and it's going to eat all of us and we're going to die. What you, when you see that happening, like, Hey, Hey, John over here. And he looks back at the first, like, Oh, thanks. Thanks. Hi. And everything kind of disperses. Mm-hmm. And he realizes like he got stuck kind of down this long tangent of like fear of a future he couldn't see in some, something that's out there in the dark, turning back to the fire. And then the truth of like our being with him and he's safe dispersed all the fear. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that's, I think what's going on supernaturally for us over and over again is as we're engaging the world and and, and wandering off, things get pretty scary. And, and the unknown future increases our anxiety. We don't know how we're going to navigate all this stuff. And it just compiles. When, when you light a candle in a dark room, when you turn someone back to the light and tell them what that light is, when mm-hmm. it's God who saved us, all that stuff disperses. So I think the, the reason that liturgical season cycle begins with Advent is like, let's, in the darkness, let's just gently look back to the light and get ready for uh, the incarnation, the coming of that light or the celebration of that at Christmas. Because when there's light, we're safe. Like mm. we can see what's true and, and our imagination and the fear of the dark doesn't have to hold. And these little things we dealt with when we're three, four, five years old, turns out supernaturally, spiritually, we're, we're dealing with the same things. With a, with an analogate that we find in the intellect rather than just like a terrified heart of a yeah. seven-year-old. Well, and even, I mean, just very simply, like we light more candles as the weeks go on. We're adding light. I mean, I've, I, there's there's an argument to be made here for you don't decorate all on day one. You just add gradually because of that, that gentle nature of it. it. The church doesn't just say like, okay, now we celebrate the incarnation. That's a big thing to just celebrate. Like we need to build up to that. Do you have a favorite Advent tradition? Yeah. I mean, in Advent, this comes from my grandma and I think it's an old German tradition. And I, I understand it's, it's more common than I used to realize, but I, I didn't know anybody else who did this growing up. But we also had a, a manger scene where the baby Jesus could come out of the crib. So he's not attached. And so um, he was not in there for all of Advent. And we would have a big pile of yarn or straw. And this started when we were like two or three years old. And mom would tell us, you know, like we spend these weeks getting ready for Jesus and we want Jesus to have a warm place. And, and what warms his heart is when our hearts are open and, and when we do good things for Jesus by doing good things for each other. So anytime we did a good deed, uh, we're helpful, said a kind word, an act of charity, we could take one piece of straw, put it in the manger. And uh, it gave us a way of like charting through the season, you know, mm-hmm. like the goal was that the manger would be overflowing with straw or with this yarn we would sometimes use. But there would be weeks where not much happened and mom mm-hmm. could very gently take us to the manger and be like, hey guys, this didn't change much this week. And and Jesus doesn't have a warm place yet because mm-hmm. it was like a little uh, cement manger set we had. And it's like, what's going on there? And it was a very gentle invitation to realize like, we have to be getting ready. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then it became a little bit of a game, not a competition, but like, uh, I want to make sure I get some straw in there right, today right. to warm this place for Jesus. So I actually still have that. I do that still to this day. With a bunch of seminarians? No, in my room, actually. In the, in the, I was with the MCs. So this is why I say it's wider than uh, a tradition that I realized. I was with the MCs, the Mother Teresa sisters out in California, and they do the same thing. Mm. Uh, and some of them brought it over from Germany. They have this, they had the best manger scene I'd ever seen. It's literally a cardboard box that they they crease the top to make it look like a roof. Wow. And then they, they cover it in brown paper bags, like grocery bags. And the point that they're making is like, he came into our greatest poverty. Mm. So let's become poor and welcome him there. It's like, whoa. That'll that'll definitely keep you from just going and buying the fanciest nativity oh, set man. you could find, right? Like that's- you know, Make it out of a box in a brown paper bag. I mean, for the longest time, my mom, our, the like the star on top of our tree was, was this 
paper plate angel that I had made in kindergarten. Because it was like, that was the most prized possession was this little... So when Rose came home with one from pre-K3 with a red-faced angel, I was like, you know what? We're just going to... Maybe they look like that. I don't know. Like, we're just going to... That's, <laughs> that's going to be our... It, it could be a um, a biblically particular correct, right? Because they're all, all sorts of craziness. I love that tradition of adding... The straw. We we have that. Um, we bought a kit from the Catholic bookstore that like taught nice. us this old German tradition. I love how when Advent transitions over into Christmas, Catholics get to keep celebrating. Like we've been building up. We've had the purple. We've had the pink. Now we add. I mean, technically our liturgical color is white, but like I try not to put out red and green stuff until Christmas has arrived. We try to keep things purple and pink, including the lights on the tree. I, I, I splurged and bought those changing color LED lights. So like it goes from an Advent tree to a Christmas tree. Why do you think sometimes the world rushes through Christmas? Like we don't celebrate the full Christmas season. Is it we're just tired because we we did all the celebrating early? And how does the church's four weeks of Advent give us then time to actually lean into the weeks of Christmas that we're called to celebrate? Yeah, I mean, that would touch upon the deepest things, right? The world doesn't celebrate Christmas the way that Christmas really is, I think, because of just a of a faith that's not active. Um, a faith that's given to anyone who's baptized, and um, and all of us have a natural ability to to open to the truth and wisdom. And so, a world that has no faith and isn't willing to pursue ultimate truth, uh, it is really just a secular festivity. It's a reason to gather with friends and family, and there's a good there, but it doesn't touch upon like the the, the fabric of of my ultimacy. Like, what what where am I headed? What's the point of my whole existence? So. Even in the church, when we move away from it too quickly, it's kind of a good examination. I'm just in real time processing this, but we can ask ourselves, like, how how readily did I continue celebrating Christmas or Easter uh, after the actual day? And all of us, I think, move on fairly quickly, despite the fact that the liturgy stays there and the season perdures for quite a time. Mm-hmm. I think often even the flow of that season is inviting us to realize, like, we need to beg for opening of this faith. Like, if we if we could see what's, if we could really grasp what these mysteries contain, we'd see that they're more important than anything else on earth because they're heavenly mysteries coming into the temporal order to to turn us toward the ultimate. And uh, when we move too quickly out of that, we are just letting, we're just demonstrating the fact that like, well, we're not quite holding these mysteries in in deep faith. That's the point of Advent. That's the point of Lent. That's what the church is like. You can't just wake up and have Christmas and Easter you need to have a long preparation. So if if we can think back on Christmases that we moved on too quickly, part of it might be the fact that we didn't allow in trusting the church, we didn't allow Advent to have its its sway over us. Mm-hmm. We didn't let it persuade us of what the church is telling us, which is that like this season matters so much. We need to move into it slowly. And we like quick things and want the quick fix today. But like think about dating. And it sounds like a strange example, but like you really want to get to know someone before you decide to commit to them. Um, we we need to spend a season like really attending to what the church is saying mm-hmm. carefully and deeply, so that when the actual celebrations here, we're like, I'm I'm in on this thing. I'm in on Christmas. I'm in on Easter because I've spent a long time getting to know what I'm celebrating now mm-hmm. and, and considering it and removing from my life all the stuff that gets in the way of that. There's a parallel here because. Love is is God. God mm-hmm. is love. And the way we navigate human love tells us a little bit about how we're structured to navigate our relationship with eternal love. Mm-hmm. Everyone thinks of of Advent as the, well, I just want to get 
I want to get through Advent quickly so I can get to Christmas because we want to celebrate Christmas. And then we celebrate it too quickly. So we don't take the time. I don't think we have that same problem with Lent. <laughs> Catholics tend to, I think, glorify Lent as like our spiritual boot camp that we all give up two or three weeks in. If Advent is the season of, okay, I, I don't really know what I'm supposed to do, but I like Advent because I'm ready to get to Christmas. Lent is like the one where I'm going to give myself all of these responsibilities because Easter doesn't really... It, Lent sometimes I feel like supersedes Easter. Do you get that same vibe? Well, Lent has um, maybe like an easy set of basic traditions attached to it. Yeah. We all are used to like, what are you giving up? And let's tough it out. And yeah, that ebb and flow of like, I did it and I failed and then I'll try again. And so there's something really necessary about that, but it definitely does. It tips the scales of our attention because it's like, you have this prep for what are you doing for Lent? Mm -hmm. be nice if we could think that way about Advent, especially right. because they're so closely related. Like the resurrection, Easter doesn't happen without his passion, but passion doesn't happen without his incarnation. It's all, it's all actually just looking at the one same great mystery of God saving us. Yeah. And that begins with the incarnation. Advent is what gets us ready to really see that the incarnation has such importance that our lives were forever changed by it and, and need to be changed in an ongoing fashion. So yeah, let's fight for Advent to become in the busiest secular season, to become the season where we start like everything. And maybe we need to start talking about Advent outside of Advent a little bit more. You know, like when we start right. talking about the resurrection, like let's talk about Advent. Let's bring up like how we get ready for the light to come and what it was like to live in the darkness and to ache for that light, to mm -hmm. ache for a pathway. I mean, Israel really gives us so many beautiful things to consider how for hundreds of years, hundreds of years lost in the darkness, what a, what a great delight it must have been to finally find the light. Mm -hmm. And those shepherds at the manger are, they embody all of us, this desire to, to find the mystery, behold it and say, huh, I don't think I, don't, I don't think I really grasped this fully, but I feel like I've been waiting for this um, for generations. Yeah. And, and Advent is like, let's sit in that waiting and get excited about the fact that it's here. I think it's, this is going to sound really cheesy, but I think it's because we don't have a visual for Easter. Like we have a visual for Christmas. We have nativity sets and we have a Christmas tree. And we know what those two yeah. things symbolize. But for Easter, like, what do I put up an empty tomb like I and I did like I did I bought this little kit it was it's called an Easter nativity um where it's like this you roll away the stone and I put it up on our but even that was hard to find and it's little you know it's not the blow up nativity set in the front yard it's not all the presents under the tree it's almost like we need some sort of a, a secularly visible representation of Easter so that I can then be like okay well I can I can get ready for that even though I do think of Lent as like Oh, well, that's that's the season of preparation. Like I'm preparing for something. I just don't know how to necessarily celebrate that something. Let's talk about Lent. It's a penitential season, just like Advent. But Advent, I think, has like this joyful penance component to it. Lent becomes the buckle down, get it done, pray fast, give alms. There's a gazillion books. There's a thousand different podcasts. Like there's best Lent ever and everything you can imagine. Why have we boot camped Lent in the church? And how do we get away from that? Yeah, I mean, maybe like to zoom out even on that question and think about Christmas and Easter in relationship. And there's like, what's on the other side of Easter? Like the empty tomb is more important than the the full manger in many ways. And that's the it's the accomplishment of the, the reason for the manger being filled by the word. But um, to get there, there's a grittiness to mm -hmm. even the Paschal mystery, not just Lent. Um, it, it's really it's really raw. And um, if we if we actually engage, you know, the triduum, we're dealing with violence and 
um, the worst, the very worst of our human possibilities, you know, like the, the, the torture of God himself, uh, the murder, the, the unjust betrayal. So that's like, those are deep themes that are pretty hard to deal with. Um, and if you're going to like really celebrate Easter, you, you need to deal with those things, or you're not going to see the tomb as exciting. Um, you're not going to understand that there's a victory here that's worth celebrating. So part of uh, Lent has its grit in itself because we deal with discipline and penance, but sometimes it's not, I don't know that it's connected tightly enough with where Lent culminates. Like technically Lent ends before the Triduum and then the Triduum occurs in its own kind of like posture to get us to Easter. So Lent is a preparation for the Triduum and the grit of Lent, boot camp, as you're saying, it has to have the right telos. Like telos, the, the Greek word for telos, end, everything we're ordered toward ends. Like everything, goal, all of our activities goal-oriented. But sometimes our goals aren't um, ultimate enough. Sometimes they're just a little too proximate, a little too close. And so like the, the penance, whatever we undertake, the boot camp, it's not, none of it's problematic, but it's it's well-ordered in discernment. But the reason it doesn't kind of reach its its fruit is because the end isn't um, broad enough or, or theological enough, serious enough. We need to be thinking during Lent about the fact that we're moving with the church toward the foot of the cross. Mm. And, and that's a scary place because God himself there is stripped. Uh, of all of his own defenses in the flesh and is suspended, imprisoned, if you will, on the cross, though he's the freest man there. And that's a that's a really raw place. Uh, I was reading the writings of this very holy religious sister out in um, New Mexico, and she talks about the nakedness of the soul, the unavoidable nakedness of the soul. And those raw themes are really contained in the Paschal Mystery, especially in, in the crucifixion of our Lord. And that's the only way to Easter. Um, and and Easter, the tomb, the empty tomb, becomes really beautiful when we fully engage those raw themes. But I think we kind of skip over that in different ways because we're not sure how to engage those really raw themes of the Triduum. And so we just make it about some discipline, about some healthy practices. We challenge each other in it. We have a, a good Lent at the level of like natural virtue. We get mm -hmm. better at saying no to things that are attractive to us. But sometimes it's not latched on to this, this real end or this real goal, which is to to taste the victory that he has won and to rejoice in it. But the only way there is through like, yeah, encountering the fact that we have to deal with the horrible things we did and the fact that we keep doing those horrible things by our fallen condition. And that's, um, it's not accusatory, but it's very revelatory of like, I ought not think too much of myself because look at what humanity did to, to the Lord and look mm -hmm. at what I can continue to do to my, by my own sin. Those are, those are tender places. And, uh, if we thought about those through Lent, Easter would be very different. If so would Lent, but the way we undertake these disciplines, we get out of boot camp and we're into like, I'm sorrowful for my sins, God, because I love you. Mm -hmm. And I'm so sorry we did that. And I don't want to do that again. So like, move that out of me, please. Carve that, sculpt that out of me by penance so I can return to you and amend my life so right. that it, it never has a place again. That, that's what Lent's supposed to do. And then we can really celebrate Easter. But absent that, it passes pretty quickly. Right. I mean, it, it's what's well, back to what we were saying about the confessional. It's an opportunity where we could be ashamed and just live in the shame or where we could actually find healing. Like Lent's boot camp nature isn't just so I can say, okay, I did that. It's to actually like, I mean, what does boot camp do for the soldier? Like to actually refashion our mind so that we can then do the the thing that we're meant to do, which is live in, in this case, live in the glory of God's victory, right? The empty tomb can't be accomplished without my emptiness. But sometimes I feel like we just empty ourselves out to say that we did it. 
Yeah, you know? exactly. It's just kind of bound in the the the, the arena is not broad enough. Our vision mm-hmm. isn't broad enough. That's why again back to faith. Like we're we're praying always for the faith to see that which is unseen. And that's a weird mystery, mm. you know, like, and that's the point really of the whole journey into the interior life is to, to be able to see a light that's not material light, but is, is the deepest thing. Um, we look pulses to what is unseen, but what is seen is transitory. And we live in a world where we're seeing, but, but everything we see passing away, we're trying to look to things we can't see um, because what is unseen is eternal. He says, and, and that's the only thing that really gives us rest actually is to know like, yeah, I'm made for eternal life. And nothing that's passing is really going to satisfy that ache, mm. except for that life itself, who's God. Um, boy, it's easy to get stuck at the surface. And so the boot camp never has its effect. Or even the, the combat of Lent, that's the language of the liturgy. It's, it is a combat. We combat spiritual evils, our fallen self and mm-hmm. the enemy of our souls. But but the, the lens has to be broad enough. That, like This is about coming into Christ-likeness and confronting all of the, any un-Christ-likeness that we can fine. Mm-hmm. And there's an awful lot of it, which leads us to live by what is seen and not what is unseen. That's a, uh, how do we walk on water? How do, mm-hmm. how do we stand on <laughs> things that are not material? Like how, those are, yeah. those are mysteries of grace. And yeah. that's yeah. actually what we're asked to step into. I, uh, that's a great line too. Mysteries of grace. Like there is a lot of, I think the, the person who's willing to invest in like, okay, I want to live the year of the church. It's it's not just a matter of subscribing to a box or I'm going to buy this book. Like, it's just like, Jesus, I'm going to invite you into letting me be more intentional with how we live this particular season. And I'm going to trust in this, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to program it. I'm not going to just purchase all the things. I'm going to like actually lean into that mystery of you revealing these things. Do you have a favorite Lenten practice? Oh, for me, it's it's favorite and least favorite at the same moment. It's um, it's fasting because I hate fasting. <laughs> I'm so bad at it. Um, I've yet to I, meet a person who says they like it, unless they're doing it for like intermittent I health this reasons. Yeah. I suppose it's true. But I, I always encounter there like my own rebellious, my fallen nature, mm-hmm. and I'm always edified to be like, it's not that hard to skip breakfast today. But as soon as I put that in my mind that I'm going to, every every thought of French toast and bacon is filled with <laughs> glory and yeah. beauty and fragrance. And it's like, wow, I, no matter how often I do this, I'm I'm still very much of the world. And and that's not a despairing thought. It's like I I can never really take confidence in my own abilities because I continually stumble mm-hmm. back into the world. And encountering that in fasting, as discouraging as it can be, is always this like place of real poverty. Like, Lord, I'm just a beggar and I, I need you so much more than I realized. So it's in fasting that I often be like, yep, I, I might be able to do X, Y, or Z really well. I might be very fulfilled in these places or, or excelling and I've got some order and organization going on, but I am bad at fasting. It's like, well, probably that's because I'm getting too comfortable again and I need to I need to revisit <laughs> Uh, my own willingness to die to myself. Um, and that's just, man, is that hard? So I love and I hate fasting. Um, but but beyond that, I'd say in Lent, it's it's really coming to the foot of the cross. It's the it's the stations of the cross mm. and like learning more each year how beautiful is the glorious passion of our Lord. And I used to hear those words be like, I don't know what that means, or that sounds kind of like piety. That's maybe trite. But I really I've become captivated by the cross and looking upon our God who who laid down his life because he's so in love with us that he wants us for himself um, and out of the snare of the enemy. I just, yeah, I'm fixated on the cross these mm-hmm. days. And Lent is what brings me there, raw, poor, like 
with very little to offer but myself but but the stations really helped me see like this is an act of love and beauty um, by the one the only one uh, who knows me truly and wants me completely forever so the stations and the cross in general are just like i don't think we'll ever get finished meditating upon mm-hmm. the cross and seeing their love winning not yeah. just man dying like love winning for me that's such a beautiful thought last year rose's class memorized the stations of the cross in kindergarten like they memorized them and and she came home and asked me like why don't we talk about these and i was just kind of like um it's a little dramatic to like just bring that up at the dinner table right like jesus fell a third time and and to contemplate like okay the third time he fell can you imagine how much blood and how much sweat and how much pain and like we weren't even at the worst part yet and i i realized i'm avoiding praying these as a family because they make me uncomfortable and maybe in that discomfort there's actually some healing that can occur about like the cross that he carried for me i don't want to think about the fact that he carried a cross for me like i'm not worthy of that and it, from a, a, a five-year-old being able to recite them and they like did it in this sing-songy voice so that they could remember all the different stations and I was really impressed that she learned them at five. And then I also got really, I felt really guilty that we haven't prayed these as a family the way that we should. Um, And I mean, it's like, there's, there's a challenge to the liturgical year of, nope, you got to confront this. You got to look at this because it, it shows you something really beautiful. And that that example from Rose is beautiful, Katie. Like, I don't know. I mean, Jesus is explicit about the fact that the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these, but we have like a, because the logos is is woven with all of creation and the, and the order is is there. These are, these are things that are, are, there's a sort of intuition and sensitivity that a child has that we have to like reverence and mm-hmm. let that also instruct us. Uh, personally, I have this strong memory of uh, my parents are out of town. I think I might've been four or five years old. It was during Lent maybe six at most. And I drew like a super simple picture of the crucifixion. Um, just like a stick figure, Jesus on the cross and then two other crosses next to him. And I was, I was so little. I mean, I remember how I barely got over the counter. I'm sitting on the stool at this house where we grew up. And I remember staring at this picture and just being so moved that I started to cry. Mm. And as a kid, I was like, wow, I can't believe I'm crying. This is like a, a little drawing I made myself. But in that moment, the babysitter came in and, and you know, God bless her for whatever was going on in her heart. But she she made fun of me. She's like, what are you doing? Get over it. Come on, let's go. And she sort of like mocked this, I don't know, this little boy crying at the crucifix. Mm. And I remember even then being like, huh, not everybody understands. Because mm. I had no doubt what was happening. I was like, I'm, I know Jesus died for me and I, it moves me to tears. And knowing like she just doesn't know that or she doesn't see that. I wasn't mad or hurt even. But it's really clear in my mind, and I've I've tried ever since then to like carry great reverence for when we see little ones mm. uh, fixated or captivated by something of the faith, because we don't they they can't articulate what's happening. Mm. But man, this is this is the God who made us, who's drawing us to Himself, and that starts to happen like the second we can move. Yeah. You know, like He's just gently the draw of His love over our lives, and when we see little kids doing stuff like that. And being moved by the stations, for example, as you're sharing with Rose, like, blessed be God and, mm-hmm. and let us all attend to that because Jesus wants us to have that type of sensitivity um, brought into our own stories and our, our adult and mature lifestyles. But there's something really beautiful about the simplicity uh, of the intuition of the heart Yeah. about the mystery of God. Well, I mean, maybe that's the visual. We need visuals of the 
Stations of the Cross, we need to, want to say, a giant crucifix in our homes during Lent. So like, we're actually constantly drawn back to that. Um, yeah, we could keep going, Father. We always can, but we need to wrap it. Um, what is your, we, we, we talked about your favorite activities between Advent and, and Lent. Um, and, and so like our other kind of like final question for our guests or all season has been like, if somebody hears this and they've never really done liturgical living, whatever that means for them. They've never bought the activities. They never baked the special cupcakes on a, on a certain feast day. Lent has always kind of been like, oh yeah, we give up sweets. Advent is, we just don't put our Christmas, like whatever, maybe just, just a very entry level. What would be your word of encouragement to go a little deeper, to recognize the gift of these ebbs and flows of the year mm. and what that can do for us? Like what's your your challenge for them in you know, a minute or less to actually try? I mean, I'm a priest, right? So I'm thinking through how the liturgy affects our whole lives. And to me, a massive game changer is the the opening prayer at every mass called the collect. If we want to move with the church and let the church be, have her way with us as the bride who's moving us toward the bridegroom, the opening prayer of every mass is so rich and powerful. Mm-hmm. And it's also instructive about the point of the prayer for that whole season, that day, that week, that season. So just finding those prayers, you can find them online or you can buy the Magnificat or buy a a missile. But even just to glance at that prayer, it's like six lines. It takes 10 seconds to read it. But just to think, okay, this is what the church is praying today at every mass throughout the world. What does that say to me? Or how can I keep that in my mind today? Mm. Um, That doesn't cost anything. It's a choice of the intellect and the will, but it's a it, it weaves our lives with this flow of the liturgy, which is is um, the activity of God trying to bring us to himself. And so it's very simple, um, but but also draws us into like a much broader thing than just how I organize my season and what traditions I adopt and don't. Yeah. It secures us in the flow of the liturgy, and that has its own power. So the collect, the opening prayer from every Mass for Advent and Lent is worth taking a glance at. Yeah. I mean, heck, even throughout just ordinary time, you saying that... The- yeah. I hate to admit it, but that's usually the part in the opening of mass that I stop paying attention because I've got to make sure my kids are about to get situated. Totally. You know, it's it like, okay, oh, father said, let us pray. That's the trigger to like, okay, do they have something before we sit down? Are they going to sit down with everybody else? I'm going to have to start praying yeah. it uh, before we get to mass on Sunday. Father John, where can people follow you? I know you're not huge on social media, but you are on Twitter. So where can we follow you on Twitter and and buy your books? You've got an Advent and a Lenten devotional that are, are they're not dated, so anybody can use them all year round. Where can we find all things Father John Burns? Yeah, at Father John Burns is my handle on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, Father Spelled Out. Um, and yeah, I've got stuff up there. Ave Maria, of course, has the books. I've published those three books with them. I've got a little website, renewreligious.org for the apostolate. But um, yeah, you can find me in prayer too. Like I really, I really am praying a lot about the mystical body and um, what it is to pray for each other through mediums like this, where we're or media like this, where we're engaging relationships that are not tactile or not you know very present um, in front of us. If there's a draw to like be connected, let's like re- I mean this, like let's pray for each other. Mm. And uh, I'm praying for you. Like I pray for the people to whom the Lord asks me to minister, even through podcasts. And so. Let that be the first, and then maybe social media and the internet later. Spoken like a true doctor. <laughs> That's not trite. I don't mean that to sound trite. No, like I, mean I love it. it. It's it. I can attest to that. It is very true, folks. You can feel the, the prayers of Father John Burns. Thank you so much for taking the time, Father. Yeah, you guys. God bless everybody.
It's always such a joy to get to visit with Father John. He truly has become a dear friend uh, to me, to my sister, who is uh, entering religious life with the Sisters of Life. He's just such a, a stalwart presence and and loves Jesus. I mean, man, he loves Jesus. And it's so great to hear that love come forth in the way he talks about these seasons. I think one of the things that I'm always struck by is how deeply I know Father John lives those seasons. Father Burns isn't just talking about Advent and Lent as these things that happen to other people. They're these seasons that he himself has lived as a priest, as a as a young man discerning his vocation, as, as a spiritual father to so many different people. You know, what it looks like to concentrate on the light of Christ coming into the world, to, to spend time meditating upon this reality that that light is giving himself over to death on a cross in the season of Lent. Advent and Lent have so many things associated with it. I I mentioned last week, you know, a few weeks ago, I, I kind of got fed up with some clutter in my house. And so I went hardcore on organizing our hallway closet. You know, one of the reasons we bought the house that we live in is because of the storage space, but we just kind of been using it as a dumping ground for quite some time. So I, I needed to get focused and I needed to organize some things. And so I had this three drawer cabinet that I, I cleaned out. I made sure there was nothing in it. I threw away the stuff that I didn't need. I, I put stuff where it needed to go and I organized all of our liturgical living supplies. The bottom shelf has all of our Advent stuff, the candles, the wreath. The center drawer has all of our Lenten and Easter resources. The top drawer has some miscellaneous saint and baptismal feast day resources. And then I've got all the saint feast cards categorized by month. So I can just pull out a little baggie that has all the stuff that I need for a particular month so that we can really celebrate that particular month and all the different things that happen really well. And it was funny as I was putting together the Advent drawer and the the Lenten Easter drawer, I had so much more stuff for Advent because wreaths are bigger and candles need to be stored properly. And there's all these different little activity things that you can do to get ready for the birth of Jesus. And Lent had stations of the cross and had this purple felt banner that has images of the station of the cross. And I have this uh, this this very beautiful like empty tomb statuary thing that you can close the tomb and then open the tomb and it says he is risen on the other side. And I'm putting all the stuff there. And and I realized, you know, we're very tactile people. To have these visual representations allows us to more intentionally lean into the season. I think that that's something worth thinking about. What's the stuff that you have that allows you to celebrate the season? Do you have an Advent wreath? Or is it kind of one of those you scramble right before Advent to find it in the attic, to make sure your candles didn't melt together in the heat of the summer? I know this might seem a little early, but Advent's right around the corner. Make sure you've got your Advent wreath or go buy a new one. They're probably on sale right now at all the Catholic bookstores because nobody's thinking about it just yet. Do you have a devotional to pray through Advent, to pray through Lent? It's never too early to make sure you've ordered it and you've got your copy ready to go. Do you have a plan for how you're not only going to resist Christmas too early, but lean into the celebration of Advent? One of the ways that we're being very intentional this year is we're taking advantage of the great Advent playlists that our friends at Catholic Family Crate create every single year. If you subscribe to Catholic Family Crate, we've got an episode with them coming up later in the season. But they create playlists of music for particular liturgical seasons. And it's so easy to just start listening to Christmas music the second December 1st hits. 
But that Christmas music means so much more when you actually listen to it in the Christmas season, right? Like it's celebrating the light of Christ. It's celebrating the joy of these gifts and, and the joy of being together and the chestnuts on the open fire. And what if we listened to Advent music, to anticipatory music, to thinking about what's coming? And even just what we hear is directing our thoughts, is directing our worship, is directing our lives. That's what liturgical living is really all about, right? Every little thing that we do, having this connectedness to help us lean into that particular season, that particular rhythm, to allow everything from Sunday to flow into Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, to help us focus on Thursday, to give us an, a moment of, of contemplation of sacrifice on Friday, to give us restoration on Saturday, so that come Sunday we can start all over again and have recognized that there's just been this beautiful wave of the church's life in my life all throughout the week. Once again, you can find Father John Burns's Advent and Lent Reflection Book available on our website, AveMariaPress.com. The links are down in the show notes to this year's brand new Advent devotional from my dear friend, Father Agostino Torres. You're definitely going to want to grab a copy as soon as you can. They're going to sell out. And, and this year, they are available in English and Spanish, along with an incredible free video series. And we'll be doing a deep dive conversation about all of the different themes on our podcast right here, Ave Explores. Ring the bell so you can subscribe follow the show. You don't want to miss a single episode. We'll be back next week with a great conversation with Scott and Elizabeth Williams, the founders of Catholic Concepts, the company that's home to incredible products such as Sock Religious, all those saint socks and our holy home and states of faith. And they're going to tell the story of not only their company that provides all these incredible resources, but what liturgical living looks like for them. Make sure you join us next week. We're so happy that you were with us this week. We're so grateful that you're taking the time to explore with us all about liturgical living in our lives. Thanks for being here. We'll see you soon. 